Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Confident Faith, today with a message titled, Abraham and the Hope of the World. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, verses 9 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Let's be clear. Child sacrifice is horrifying. Several years ago, the nation of Uganda made the news as it was reported that hundreds of Ugandan children were kidnapped and murdered as a part of a thriving human sacrifice business involving witch doctors. Are you shocked? Well, I certainly am. I mean, how can it be that a practice relegated to a dark chapter in the past is still, even while in a small fashion, but it's still alive and well in the 21st century? This brutal business still has not gone away. Now, the Bible is plain about this matter. Leviticus 18, verse 21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. The practice of burning one's children to the pagan god Moloch, who is the god of the Moabites, is a long-standing practice. So much so that during the reforms of righteous King Josiah, 2 Kings 23, verse 10 says of Josiah, and he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. You know, the valley of Hinnom was just outside of Jerusalem. And so we might ask, how did child sacrifice get there? Well, that's because the practice had become established in some circles. You know, earlier, recorded in 2 Kings 3, verse 27, describes a horrible matter regarding the Moabites. It says, Israel and Judah were fighting against Moab. And then 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 26 and 27 says, When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel. Now, the wrath spoken of here seems to be that the act of child sacrifice so enraged the Moabites that they fought with a fury that won them the war. Again, such a matter only reinforced child sacrifice as an effective tool in battle. But the Bible records such incidents to show how perverse pagan religions can become. It serves as a warning that when one gives oneself to pagan gods, the depravity in the heart knows no end. Indeed, that's exactly what Israel had begun to do. The prophet Ezekiel, in describing why God destroyed Judah at the hands of the Babylonians, talks about how both Israel and Judah had profaned the house of God. And so I'm reading Ezekiel 23, verse 39. It reads, For when they had slaughtered their children in sacrifice to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. You know, it's hard to imagine how wicked the chosen people had become. Idolatry will do that. Every once in a while, I'll read about some person who's clearly psychologically disturbed, believing that God called him to kill his children. You know, in one case, I remember the person claiming that he had taken his inspiration from the story of Abraham, that it was a test to see if he really loved God and would not withhold his only son. <laughs> Terrible. You know, yesterday I began to deal with the account of Genesis 22. We began by reading Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. 
He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You know, seen against the background that I've described, this is a shocking passage indeed. Yesterday, I spoke of Abraham's faith in which he believed, if necessary, God would raise the lad from the dead. You know, from that, we learned some very valuable lessons about faith, but we had not yet dealt with the actual reasons why God would have commanded what seems to us such an awful thing. Indeed, just so that we get it, let me say ahead of time that the thing that we read about here in Genesis 22 is a non-repeatable event. That is, something very unique is done in Genesis 22, and, and if anyone at any time in the future believes that God is calling him or her to sacrifice a child. Listen, God never asks that. Genesis 22 is unique. It's never to be repeated. Child sacrifice is abhorrent to God. He views such an act as sin. To sacrifice any human being to a God, never mind to the God of Israel, is an act of utter darkness. Well then, if that's the case, And if it is the case that the incidents recorded in Genesis 22 is a one-time event, never to be repeated, what then is the possible reason for it? If God is simply using this to test Abraham's faith, well, aren't there other ways of doing the same thing? Well, in order to answer that, let's pick up our story from Genesis 22, verse 9. You know, up to this point, Abraham and Isaac have gone together up to Mount Moriah, And Isaac wants to know, since we're sacrificing on this mountain, where is the sacrificial animal? And Abraham simply answers, God will provide a sacrifice. And so with that as a background, I'm reading Genesis 22, verses 9 to 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So we notice that Isaac doesn't seem to resist his father. We also notice that the text says nothing about the feelings of either Abraham or of Isaac. Is Isaac terrified? Is Abraham weeping? Well, I assume so, but the Bible is not interested in that part of the story. What it does describe is that the altar is laid out in such a way as would be expected in an act of worship. The act is solemn. It's an act that is done unto God. Verse 9 says that Abraham bound Isaac to the altar. In later Hebrew tradition, this is a word that was used in animal sacrifices. One binds the legs of an animal for sacrifice. Please remember that it was Moses who wrote this account, the same Moses who would give a detailed instruction about animal sacrifices in the tabernacle as an offering to God, a reminder of sins with an understanding that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. 
It's also interesting that verse 10 says that Abraham was about to slaughter Isaac. Yeah, that's the word, slaughter. There are a number of Hebrew words for slaughter, but the one that's used here clearly means to slaughter for sacred reasons. And so understand the act. This is to slaughter him for the sake of sins. He is a sacrificial being, being killed to appease the anger of God for the sake of human sins. Now, does that sound shocking? Well, it is. But this part of the story must not be missed. This is essential to understanding what was happening on that mountain. Now to verse 11. As Abraham stands ready to sacrificially slaughter his son in worship for the forgiveness of sins, the angel of the Lord intervenes. Now we've noticed before that at times the phrase angel of the Lord or messenger of the Lord is sometimes a synonym for God himself or as as we've seen for the second person of the Trinity. Now, the reason I raise this possibility here is because in verse 12, the angel of the Lord says, for now I know that you fear God. See, he doesn't say, now God knows that you fear him. He says, now I know, indicating that this messenger or angel of Yahweh is himself satisfied. What was required was that the angel was satisfied. It was the angel that was testing Abraham. It was the angel that stopped this event on his own. See, I think this is significant, but you'll have to be patient with me. I'm going to pull all of this together at the end. But for now, would you notice that it seems that God himself intervenes, or if I'm right, and if you've listened to my earlier messages on this matter, I'm going to argue that Christ intervened at this point in time. Now, I know he says that you have not withheld your son from me. And over 400 years later, when Israel was in Egypt, during the time of the 10th plague, God struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. But Israel, if you'll recall, was called to brush the blood of a sacrificial animal onto the door frames of their houses, and in this way, their firstborn would be spared and saved from death. And then immediately after that, Moses would tell Israel that every firstborn male in Israel would have to be redeemed. And here's the lesson. Your children will die like the Egyptians' children unless there is a substitutionary sacrifice that is made. As we begin 2018, we want to thank all of those who support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as a partner to tell monthly partner. Your regular commitment allows for the essentials of ministry to take place, and we're so grateful. 2018 begins a celebration of our 60th anniversary of ministry in Canada, and the giving of every partner has made this milestone possible. Our goal for this special year is to surpass 700 monthly partners. Perhaps you've never given, or or maybe two or three times a year. Maybe this is the year you become a partner to tell monthly partner. Our commitment will be to continue to provide the Bible teaching you expect, but more. More programs, reaching more people, using more mediums than ever before, while remaining faithful to the mission and legacy established 60 years ago by our founder, Theodore Epp. Become our next Partner to Tell monthly partner today. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I want to return to the place where Abraham laid his son on the altar of sacrifice. 
Genesis 22 verse 2 says that it was in the land of Moriah on one of the mountains. And traditionally, that site has been linked to Mount Moriah. There's a history to that mountain. According to 2 Samuel 24, King David sinned against God, and in the process, a plague came upon the people of Israel. 70,000 people had died. And then the destroying angel stretched out his hand against Jerusalem, but the Lord restrained the angel from destroying the city out of his compassion. And the prophet Gad then approached David, and at his word, David went up to build an altar to the Lord at the place where the destroying angel stood. But the place where the angel stood was owned by a man named Aruana the Jebusite. He had a threshing floor on the top of the hill above Jerusalem. Threshing floors would be built on the top of high places so that the wind could blow the chaff away. And David purchased that threshing floor from Aruana the Jebusite, built an altar on top of that hill, and the plague against Jerusalem was averted. Now, you'll also remember, especially if you know the history of the Bible, that David later determined to build a temple of the Lord, but he was forbidden from building the temple because of all the wars he had waged. Being a man of blood, he was forbidden. But his son Solomon does build the temple, and I'm now reading 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And by the way, just so that no one's confused, the name Arwana and the name Ornan are simply derivations of the same word. It's the same person. So let's see if we can grasp the significance of 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon became king in Israel in 970 B.C. According to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, Solomon began to build the temple in the fourth year of his reign, which would make that 966 B.C. The Bible says that it took him seven years to build the temple, and so we have to give a date of the completion of the temple at around 959 B.C. That same temple remained in its place until the Babylonians destroyed it in 586 BC, and so it stood there for some 373 years. After the return of the Jewish exiles to their promised land, a second temple was built on that very site. The construction was completed around 515 BC, and the second temple was destroyed by the Roman army exactly as Jesus had predicted in AD 70. And so the second temple existed for some 585 years. Putting the two temple periods together, a fully functioning temple, complete with animal sacrifices, carried on in that very site for over 950 years. For almost a millennium, countless animals were sacrificed on the very spot where Abraham had once stood with Isaac, knife extended, God intervening, saying, do not take the life of the boy. Look, I have provided animal sacrifices in place of your son. Remember again that prior to the temple standing there, David had built an altar there, sacrificing animals so that the plague of God would not fall on the city and that countless lives would be saved. Now, let's go back to Abraham and Isaac on that mountain so many years earlier. Most of us, when we imagine Abraham and Isaac up on Mount Moriah, imagine some secluded location, somewhere in a vast wilderness in which no one else would have lived. But if we have the location right, and I'm sure that we do, then we know that Abraham and Isaac 
were in the location right above Jerusalem on the hill overlooking Jerusalem. As we've already seen in Genesis 14, Abraham had met King Melchizedek, king of that city, many years earlier. It was this king that had met Abraham after his battle with four kings, had brought out bread and wine, and had blessed him. You know, some see the bread and the wine as a type or a foretaste of the symbol of communion. Remembering that Jesus was sacrificed, his broken body and shed blood poured out on account of the sins of his people. Do you see the entanglements of our account? Do you see how Mount Moriah is significant and why the sacrifice of Isaac means more than we might have expected? 2,000 years after Abraham had stood with Isaac on that mountain, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and it was there on that mountain that the temple stood and where Jesus became the sacrificial lamb to be bound to the altar of a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Furthermore, Jesus himself had said that the temple would be torn down, and it was. Since A.D. 70, the time of temple sacrifices has come to an end. And this signifies that no more sacrifices are required on Mount Moriah. For by his one sacrifice, Jesus has ended the need for sacrifice for all time. The book of Hebrews tells us why. I'm reading Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." Now, let's see if we can tie everything that I've said together. Roughly 4,000 years ago, Abraham stood on Mount Moriah overlooking the city, which had housed a very unique king. Above the city on that day, on an altar of worship, lay Abraham's only son, Isaac, the child of promise, the child who had come into this world as a result of an impossible birth. God had promised that this child was the chosen seed that would break Satan's curse. And there he lay on the altar, awaiting a knife to be plunged into him. But God himself intervened and provided a ram. Many years later, and then year after year, thousands of rams and lambs and bulls and, and other cattle would be slaughtered on that very ground. We would always be reminded that sins needed to be atoned for. Blood needed to be shed so that the destroying angel, the messenger of God's wrath, might be satisfied. But no blood of a goat or a bull could ever satisfy the righteous anger of God for human rebellion and sin. That is, until 2,000 years after Abraham and Isaac stood on that place, the direct descendant of Abraham and Isaac came to that location. He was the chosen seed. He was born in a supernatural way. According to Hebrews 5, Jesus was a priest king after the order of Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem. He came to that place as the last high priest who would offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice for human sin. Just like Isaac, he would not resist as he was bound to the altar. You know, interestingly enough, Abraham had believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. But the greater Isaac, Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God, was raised from the dead. For God's promises cannot fail. Look again at verse 14 of Genesis 22. 
So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You know, the phrase, the Lord will provide, is now often known to us as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. When we were lost in sin and subject to death, God has provided. This provision came on the mount of the Lord, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, the holy hill of the Lord, the joy of the whole earth, the very place where Abraham's blessing would come to all nations. Well, let me take you back to where it all began. I began by saying that what happened between Abraham and Isaac is a one-time thing never to be repeated. By now, that should be readily apparent. That's because 2,000 years ago, indeed some 2,000 years after Abraham, another father, El Olam, the eternal God, would march his own son up that same hill. Let me repeat, like Isaac, this son would carry the wood of his own sacrifice to be slaughtered upon it. Like Isaac, this son of God would not offer up any resistance at all and simply allow himself to be bound at the place of the slaughter. And like Isaac, God too saved him from the power of death through his own resurrection. But unlike Isaac, this son would be the sacrificial lamb. He would be the sin bearer for the world. This son is the ram in the thicket. He is the one who allows all of us to go free. You know, if I'm right that the angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, then the picture is altogether amazing. The one who came to announce that Isaac would go free is the very one who is the ram in the thicket, the Passover lamb, the spotless lamb, killed so that we might live. Never pass over the story of Genesis 22 without falling onto your knees and remembering Jesus. Thank him that he was sacrificed in your place. John, quick question. You've told me that this passage just doesn't make sense in Genesis 22 unless for Christ's sacrifice. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I would have argued that it would have been impossible for the ancient rabbis, teachers of Scripture in the Old Testament time, to have made sense of this passage uh, until the final sacrifice of God's one and only Son, who is the greater Isaac, was sacrificed for us. This incident was given to us so that we might understand what it meant for Christ to be sacrificed for us. That's bedrock, and this is how God works. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Celebrate 60 years of Back to the Bible Canada in 2018. 60 years of ministry that took place because of your prayers and support. In celebration, we'll be announcing a number of events, activities, programs, firsts, and special resources. The first of those is our 60th anniversary series with founder Theodore Epp and Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. I know you'll be impacted by the sound teaching and inspired by the heart of Theodore Epp for this ministry and the ongoing faithfulness to his original mission and vision. And as our gift to begin the celebrations, we want to send you this very special five-message series for free. Just ask. And for those who can remember 30, 40, 50 years of ministry ago, there may be also some special moments to stir your memory. So call for your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.